The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. I invite you to take a seat. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 19. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the pew back or somewhere close by. And if you don't have a Bible um, at home, we'd love to give you one as a gift. And they're available at the info table after the service. Exodus 19, um, verses 1 through 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord.
I'm going to hand this to you. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Looking forward to getting into Exodus 19 with you all. Before we do, I have an exciting uh, announcement. Uh, Caitlin, if you want to come up to the stage, this is Caitlin Sign. She's our new director of Family Ministries. Can you guys welcome Caitlin up here? Um, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin's been on staff for about a month now, a little over a month now. Um, we brought her onto the staff team to oversee, again, it's the director of family ministries, but to oversee park kids and park teens. That's giving particular thought to the discipleship and formation of our children from infants all the way through high school, but also for the equipping of parents and the equipping of our whole church body uh, to think about what does it mean to um, lead children to know and to follow um, Jesus. And Caitlin has um, experience in youth ministry and in education, so we're so thankful um, that God's brought you to the team. Uh, her and her husband, Josh, moved out to Colorado about three years ago. They've been at Park Church for about three years. They have a son, Josiah, who's five years old, and Levi, who's one year old. So they're busy at their home, but they're also um, busy with different um, vocations in the city. And we're so thankful uh, that God brought you to Park Church, brought your family to Park Church, and uh, thankful for the work that you're doing here already. Um, Caitlin's going to share for a second uh, how we can be praying for her. We're going to pray for her, but also um, we just want you to be able to kind of put a face to the name. We sent out an email. We've mentioned uh, her presence on our staff team, uh, but want you to see her, but also we're excited for you to get to know um, her. So how, how can we be praying for you? And this is on. Oh, there we go. Hi, guys. I'm Caitlin. Um, I am super thrilled to be in this new position and to be on staff here at Park. Um, like Gary said, we have been at Park for five years or five years. No, we haven't. Three years. And um, it's just been really great to be part of this church body and to now be on staff is a real joy. So I would definitely love prayer just for our family in this time of transition as we are um, just undergoing newness. Um, I've been at home with my kids the last three years. So being in this position is really exciting for me um, to get to work with parents to help them to understand better how to equip their kids to love Jesus and to disciple them in their daily lives. And so I'm super excited about that. Would love prayer for that. Um, also just would love prayer for the kids in our ministry, for um, the babies through the seniors in high school. God has such great things for them. And so we just really want to lift them up before God and pray that he would um, work in their hearts and lives to bring him to bring them to himself. And then, um, yeah, I just would love prayer in this time for our volunteers, for the people who come alongside Melanie and I to love our kids and to teach them the gospel. That's great. Um, I'm going to pray for Caitlin here, but um, as she leads in this ministry, um, we're thankful for her competence, for the gifts she has, the experience. But I just want to say, um, if you've been around church ministry for any period of time, uh, the children's ministry uh, has uh, unique pressures. Uh, I think about uh, Melanie Fenwick, who's been laying down her life in so many ways for years. I'm leading in those to have Caitlin on the team now supporting the work Christy's done. But there are just um, literally like 150 plus volunteers. There are hundreds of kids. There are uh, so many things involved and pressures week to week. Um, and, and I just want to encourage you all um, not only to pray for Caitlin, to pray for Melanie, but to find ways to support them. Uh, to be caring for them, encouraging them, to make sure um, you're seeing ways that you can support and help the formation of our children, the equipping of our parents is core to our mission, but it's also core to your life and core to the mission God's given you. Um, so be praying regularly, uh, but also be looking for ways to support, to get more involved, to, to find ways to alleviate things, to show up when it's your week, to show up 
uh, for Park Kids and, uh, and just support the good work that they're doing. Um, so we're so thankful. I'm going to pray for you now, but we're thankful for you both. And Melanie, thankful for you too. Um, we're thankful for the good work they're doing. Let's pray. Um, God, thank you for uh, Josh and Caitlin. Thank you for Josiah and Levi. Thank you for bringing their family to Park Church, for the gifts you've given Caitlin, the experiences you've given her, the passion you've given her, and then for working in her heart, just leading her uh, into this new season to support the work that's been happening and to continue to lead uh, forward uh, with Park Kids and Park Teens. And we're so grateful for the lives um, that you've brought into this church family, the children. Um, We want them to know you. We want them to to see you. Even just as we were singing, like, um, oh God, let this be a generation that seeks your face, oh God of Jacob. That's what we want to pray for the kids, that the the kids and park kids, the 150 kids that are uh, roaming around uh, and learning and uh, growing and experiencing life, that they would be a generation that seeks your face. And so would you pour out your grace on Caitlin, pour out your grace on Melanie, pour out your grace on all the volunteers and all the parents and all the gospel communities as we seek to love and to lead these children to know you, to know your love, and to know what it means to follow you. And would you strengthen them? Uh, Would you be with Caitlin's family, the Sines family, as they um, just transition into a new season with changing family dynamics? Pour out your grace on them. Give them strength in their marriage. Uh, Give them uh, grace with their children. Give their children grace with the, with the different dynamics um, happening around their home. Would you pour out your grace on them, pour out your spirit on them, um, but also help us um, to actually grow as a whole body that's thinking about what it means to lead these kids to grow as disciples of Jesus. Um, so we pray for your grace in all of it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Can we thank Caitlin one more time? Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Um, I also just wanted to let you guys know, I would love to get to know you. Um, So if you are a parent, you've probably seen, I have a little invite to grab some time with me, either for a play date or a coffee. I would love just to get to know each and every one of you. And I also just wanted to remind you guys that next week, next Sunday, we have a family fun day at Highland Park from three to five. Be a really great time to get to say hi to me, say hello. We have sweet cow and um, bouncy houses. So it sounds like a great time, right? Some single guy's going to be there. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Look forward to meeting you. That's good. Thank you. All right. We're going to um, get into Exodus 19 uh, together. And before we do, this is our last series, our last sermon um, on the front half of our series through Exodus. So if you've been with us for a little while, we started Exodus at the end of January of this past year or of this year, and then uh, we've made it through Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is the turning point. It's sort of the linchpin um, of the story of the Exodus. Uh, We'll be taking the summer to do what we've done every summer for the past several years, Uh, our series through the Psalms. We call it Christ in the Psalms. Um, We love our series in the Psalms. We love it. It's time to spend time um, in a book of the Bible or a series of prayers and songs and poems in Scripture that teach us how to feel, teach us how to express emotions before God, teach us how to pray, teach us how to pursue Jesus um, in the sort of complexity and diversity of the emotional experience of this life. Um, We love this series, but I have to say I'm like sad to take a break from Exodus because it's been really uh, really powerful in my own life and in so many conversations. Uh, but we'll be getting back to Exodus, picking up chapter 19 in the fall and finishing up uh, Exodus in the fall before Advent. So that's the plan. Uh, so this is our last time in Exodus for the spring. Um, we've been praying this morning. We were praying earlier this morning for this time and in uh, and, and some ways that kind of shifted a little bit of what, uh, what we're going to do here together for the next uh, 35, 40 minutes or so. Uh, as we're praying about what God's doing in Exodus and 
where we're at as a, as a church family, um, just this overwhelming sense that God wants to meet with us today. Not to kind of just go through motions today, not to uh, listen to a sermon, take some notes and go home and do your thing today, but he wants to meet with us today. Um, every time we gather together, we want to be people that are hungry to meet with God. Um, but just the sense of like, what does it mean to carve out a little more space? So we're going to end a little bit, um, a couple minutes earlier with the sermon, create a few more minutes to slow your heart, still your heart before Jesus, and to spend time responding to his invitation to you to draw near to him. And so that's our plan. Um, so even want to encourage you to be praying. God is pursuing you this morning through his word. And let's pray that he would do that in power. Um, Jesus, we are so grateful that you did not leave us on our own. We just saying we can't make it on our own, oh God. We need the cross. We need our Savior's blood. Um, that we are constantly prone to kind of um, lift our hands to another. Uh, we're constantly prone to give our, ourselves to these um, idolatrous desires, these longings that lead us away from you. And we need your mercy and we need your grace, um, not just in salvation, but even right now, just to return, just to turn, just to be aware of your presence with us. Just to see your presence, we need your help. To know that you, the holy God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the sustainer of our breath, that you want to meet with us this morning. So would you speak in power in this time together through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Exodus 19, you could say, is, a, is a, really the gospel or the story of the Bible in a chapter. Um, the major themes that are happening throughout the whole story of the Bible and the Exodus sort of come to a head in Exodus 19 in some really powerful ways. But as we think about the gospel, it's interesting. We all kind of like come into this news about Jesus, this news about what God's doing to redeem us and to save us and to bring us into relationship with God our Father. We come into that news um, kind of from different, different angles. And we actually walk through life with a lot of commonalities among us, but we actually approach life with different values, every, every one of us. And it's been interesting. I've been thinking over the past couple months about this dynamic. It's made its way into different sermons throughout Exodus, but I just want to be really clear and kind of help you situate yourself and the sort of agenda of your life, the sort of governing passions of your life this morning. And so if I were to kind of give four categories of the type of life that most people in here uh, are pursuing, uh, I want you to try to find yourself in these categories. And the first category would be the pursuit of the fun and exciting life. The fun and exciting life. Um, traditionally, historically, this sort of like pursuit of life is common among people that are in the sort of like uh, college, post-college kind of like time where just like the passion is to enjoy, um, enjoy life as much as you can and find as much kind of pleasure in life as you can. So you're going from adventure to adventure, from excitement to excitement. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the 19th century philosopher, talked about it as this um, aesthetic life. He called it the aesthetic life. And the aesthetic life is the life that's the pursuit of pleasure and enjoyment. And so it's this kind of pursuit of something fun, something exciting, something stimulating, and your greatest fear is that your life would be boring, right? Uh, one author, um, an op-ed uh, journalist named David Brooks calls it the Instagram life. It's like the type of life that would uh, like be worthy of showing on Instagram. Like if people looked at your Instagram feed, it'd be like, they are cool, right? Like, so I'm, I'm a dad with three kids in a minivan, and this is your worst fear. I am your worst, I'm your worst fear. You know, it's like that's when life gets boring, when there's no more vacations, there's no more like spontaneous trips, no more like quick excursions to the mountains. Like that's not what you want. You don't want a minivan. And I was there once too. 
Uh, I was there once too. Everybody that has a minivan used to be somebody like you. So you're on your way. It's just normal human development. It's coming. It's coming. And so it's like, that's, that's your pursuit. There's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Like the world is full of these incredible beauties and pleasures and things to enjoy. And God created us with capacity for joy. It's just like kind of what, what tends to mark and govern your life. A lot of people shift out of that at some point and move into a second category, which is this successful and productive life. The pursuit of a successful and productive life. That's just like you want to achieve things. You want to do something with your life. You want your life to amount to something, not just kind of like a series of pleasures, but you want your life to amount to something that you did, something you accomplished. And so you, you may be the person that went through college. You already had some of this in you, and you were just driven to get good grades so you could get into that particular program, so you could get that particular degree, so you could get that particular career. And now that you're in the career, you have this ambition and this desire to advance, and it's not bad. It just kind of like governs a lot of the way you think. You work long hours. You work really hard. You get a lot of joy, not just out of the weekends, but out of achieving things, accomplishing things, kind of advancing your life to the next level, the next, the next stage in your development. And you are hungry for this productive and successful life that's like doing something in the world, bringing some value into the world. It's not, it's not bad. And that tends to like mark a, a lot of people in this world. Another approach to life would be the connected and relational life. And the connected and relational life, like uh, fun is good and, uh, and kind of enjoyment's good and like working's good, but like what you care about most is being connected with people, like being known and being loved and knowing and loving people. And so you're thinking a lot about who you're doing life with, your, your connections, your friendships. You're thinking about uh, pursuing that significant other, establishing a family, you're thinking about kids, you're thinking about relatives, you're thinking, or if you're uh, older in life and you're thinking about like your, your kids that have left the home and you're thinking about uh, your grandkids and you just want relational connection and that's the sort of like governing a lot of the way you think about your life and your schedule and your agenda and your year and the way you spend your time and your money. That's sort of like just you want deep relationships. You want to be in deep relationships. Whether you're accomplishing things or having pleasure after pleasure is not the main thing. It's relational. Or maybe in the last category could be the ordered and secure life. The ordered and secure life. So in the ordered and secure life, it's not so much about kind of advancement. It's not so much ambition. It's about building a castle and protecting it. It's about creating a place where you understand like your world, you have a grip on your world, and there's safety and there's security and it seems like you know what to expect. There aren't a lot of fears or dangers. And so what you're spending your time doing is, is you're spending your time thinking about how can I have everything in life in its proper place? How can I have a healthy structure to my life and healthy structure to my world and my relationships? And, 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 I, and I want these things and I have a job, but I just want everything to be in this proper place. And so I spend my energy trying to kind of like maintain this sense of security or trying to achieve this sense of security. You're thinking about the future. You're thinking about future security. So you've thought about your retirement plan and you've thought about saving up for your kids' retirement, but you don't even have kids yet, but you're thinking about them. And uh, you're like planned out and ordered and you want security. None of these things are, are bad. They're God-given desires. There's nothing wrong about them. So where do you find yourself? Like, where do you find yourself? Like, if you were to, if you were to think, what, what one of these categories? Fun and exciting, productive, successful, connected, relational, secure, well-ordered. Like, where do you find yourself? I want you to think about that. Where, what is, like, what tends to govern my life? And we've been talking about these things for a while. 
And I just think it's really important to situate yourself because those desires, though they're not bad, those tend to be the areas where there are potentials for significant, what the Bible would call, idolatries. Again, the desires aren't bad. It's when the desires get disordered. When the desires cease to become like a good desire in life, but they become the source of life. When it ceases to become a thing that you, you, you care about under the reign of God and God is your source of joy in life and, and these are good values, but now these things are the source of life. These things are what life consists of. It's what life is made of. It's what life comes from. It's what joy will come from. And they start kind of getting these corrupted, disordered desires. And so what the book of Exodus is about is about what God is doing to redeem us from that bondage, the sort of like trapped, enslaved sense of like um, an inability to find joy in these things, but we keep going and going and going after it. And so when you, when you think about Christianity, when you meet Jesus, what people are learning is this language like, I've been saved. You say, what have you been saved from? Sin. Okay, what's sin? Bad behavior? Well, it's not. It's heart-level corruption. It's heart-level disorientation. It's taking the good things of the world and pursuing them as the source of life. And when you do that, it leads to anxieties and fears and lusts and cravings and, and insecurities that then lead to a kind of external behavior. But it's those desires having their wrong place. And so when we're actually turning from sin, when you first meet Jesus, not, it doesn't have to all make sense to you. But what you're saying when you meet Jesus is, I've been running the wrong way, trying to find life in the creation. And now, and now that's like, come to a head and I realize that I need Jesus and I learn about his blood and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so I turn to him and when I turn to him, there's a freedom, a freedom that the Bible calls redemption. Redemption. The first few chapters of the book of Exodus are about God redeeming people from bondage. But what we're learning through this story is that being redeemed from bondage does not mean that the heart is immediately fully transformed. And so certain theologians or um, kind of commentators will say that if the first few chapters are about getting the people of God out of Egypt, the time in the wilderness is getting Egypt out of the people of God. So you have this experience of like these desires that I'm I'm enslaved to and I'm trapped. And finally I learn about God's grace and I learn I'm forgiven and loved and accepted. But I still have these desires. I still have this proclivity to turn back to these other things in life that can't give life. And this life in the wilderness is what God's doing to actually prune, to purify, to develop, to, to change. And he does it through actually breaking down those foundations that we used to build our life on so that we'll increasingly be a people that say, we can't make it on our own, oh God. We need you. And so the wilderness has been doing that for the people of Israel. They've struggled to find water, struggled to find bread. They've been in battles where they're learning they don't have the power to feed themselves, to sustain themselves, to give them life, to defeat their enemies. They need God, and now they're ready to meet him. And so if you're thinking about the story of Exodus, really what the whole story is getting at isn't just God's desire to liberate them from bondage, to take them out of Egypt. It's about God's desire to bring them into his presence. His presence. That the wilderness is not just a place of situational struggle. We looked at a couple weeks ago. It's not just a battlefield we looked at last week. The wilderness is a place that God wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with you. Really. So today, you're in the wilderness, right now. And God wants to meet with you. Not to just give you some better tactics. Not to give you some tools. Not to kind of equip you merely. But to be with you. And that's what the heart of this passage is about. 
as the people have come out of Egypt, they finally arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is about to meet with his people face to face for the first time. And it's a stunning passage. It's a really important passage for the history of the people of Israel, the history of the people of God. And it helps us understand a lot of what God is wanting to do even in our hearts and our lives today. And so what I want us to see this morning um, is God's desire to meet with you in the wilderness. And we're really going to look at, and we're gonna, we'll move pretty quickly, um, really three different areas or three different aspects of God's desire to meet with us. And the first one is, is simply this. The holy God of the universe wants to draw you nearer to himself. The holy God of the universe right now, it's not a point of a sermon, you can write it down, but like what I'm saying to you is the holy God of the universe right now wants to draw you nearer to himself. I want you to see it in the passage. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, on the third new moon, that's like three months after they have been liberated from bondage, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, now they've spent three months in the wilderness, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Now this is just like an interesting thing to, to note. When, when the people are in Egypt, if you think just geography, Egypt is northeast part of Africa, and, and there's this Red Sea here, and the place where they're going, where God's told them he's going to take them, is in the land of Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey, and it is northeast of Egypt, northeast, north-northeast. And where God has taken them for three months is south-southeast. They're actually further away from Canaan than they were when they were in Egypt, which feels weird. That when God brings us out of bondage, he's not bringing us this ever increasingly like, like good path to like this life that we long for. He often leads us into a place of disorientation, a place of actually breaking down things. That, like, like those desires we had when we were in bondage aren't gone. And sometimes God leads us further away into like more disorienting, more confusing, more kind of like unsettling places in order to break down the foundations that idolatrous foundations, the unhealthy foundations that we were previously building our life on. And when he does that, it's good. And when he begins to do that, and we finally feel all these kind of like this, this fragility to like the, the ground we've been standing on. We feel the wildernessness. Does that work? All right, all right. The wildernessness of this life. Now all of a sudden we're ready to meet him. We're ready to meet him. We're ready to experience his grace because we've, re we've recognized more the futility and the vanity of all the things we've been building our life on. And that's what God's done. He's brought them further out into the wilderness. Why? Look with me at what it says. It says, There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. You say, what's the point of the book of Exodus? That's the point. Deliver you out of bondage and bring you to myself. Bring you to me, to my presence, to experience my presence. That's what God has done for the people, and that's what God is doing in your life. That's what God is intending to do in your life. 
to bring you out of bondage, to continue to, to shake up the, the unhealthy, the faulty foundations that we tend to build our life on, to bring you deeper into this place of experiencing his presence, him as the source of joy. Not the new adventure, not the advanced career, not the ever-increasing relationships, not the kind of like pursuit of security. All of those things are faulty. All of those things have a brokenness to them. Right? So think about that, right? Like that pursuit of fun and joy, like what you see is like you actually end up feeling a shallowness to your life when you just like are all about just having pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. At some point you feel like, is this what life is? Like my life isn't amounting to anything. I'm not giving myself to people. There's no real sense of purpose except for this like the next joy, the next experience, the next adventure, the next thing I can post. And now the Instagram posts aren't this kind of like celebration. It's actually masking your sense of emptiness. Do you know the amount of people that are like posting? And I say like waving my hands. As we post on Instagram, often there's like pain. That's just not what we're just like masking. Like, look, I feel happy. Aren't, isn't everybody happy? Doesn't everybody? It's like, no. Like there's insecurities and emptiness. The same thing with the productive life. You find yourself working and working and working to achieve. Now you've lost sight of like the, the original desire to achieve for the good of, of something you're producing. And now you just want to achieve just to achieve because it feels good to advance. It feels good to make progress. It feels good to, to do something. And so now you're struggling with workaholism, which is one of the biggest kind of like society-wide masks for emotional and spiritual unhealth. Work harder, work harder, work harder. If I keep achieving, if I keep accomplishing, if I keep performing, if I stay busy, then I don't have to face the spiritual and emotional unrest inside my soul. Or it's the relational life. It's like you're single and you're so thinking about that next phase of life. You're, you're, you're anxious about your relationships or you're anxious about you want to get married so bad that you're missing some of the beautiful opportunities that God's given you right now. Singleness is not deficient human experience. It's a gift of God. That you see something beautiful of God through singles that are giving their lives to others and, and trusting God as the companion to walk with them through life and, and to invest. And, and you're losing sight of that because there's this anxiety or, or you have kids and, and you're giving yourself to these kids like so fully that it's such, such a source of identity that when they go off to school or when they graduate from college or when they get married, it is derailing. Because all of your identity has been built on this family that's now changed. And it's not what it used to be. And now you're, there's an insecurity. Or your kids are out of the home and they have their own kids now. And they're not coming home as often as, as you wish. And there's tensions relationally. And it's hard. Or in the well-ordered life, you find yourself like constantly irritable. Because everything feels like a threat to stability. You're, you're anxious about the future. You're anxious about the stock market. You're anxious about everything. And you're just like, because you're so overwhelmed at the attempt to keep your castle safe. Like all those things are broken. And when those broken things come, God is doing something. Say, I want to meet with you. I want to be with you. I want to draw you into myself in the wilderness. What's, what's incredible about, about this passage is there's actually this very clear, this very clear um, objective of God to bring the people to himself. But the whole passage is couched in this like cloud of thunder and lightning and, and this rumbling and this smoke that's filling up the whole um, kind of the whole region. And there's this loud trumpet blast. And it's like very important that you understand that the God that's drawing you near is the holy 
God of the universe. He's not like sitting down on a kind of a sofa and like, hey guys, I want to draw you near, you know? Israel, come on up. Come on up. You know, it's safe. It's safe. You know, he says, don't, don't come too close. I might kill you. That's what's happening in the past. If you come too close, if we draw too near, he might lash out against us. There's something about his holiness that's not just this like warm, cuddly holiness. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the source of life. He's the source of power. He's the source of purity for this world. And so in our rebellion, in our impurities, to kind of like trounce into the creator's presence is this like utterly inappropriate thing when you start reading the Bible and you consider the majesty and the splendor of this God. And yet, he's drawing us near. And yet, he's on a mission to, drink, to, to bring us into his presence. And that sort of like juxtaposition of his, his ferocious holiness, his absolute purity, like the sun that would just devour any, any impurities that come near to it, and then his desire to draw us near kind of gives way to the second half of Exodus and a lot of the second half of Exodus 19. And these laws, these rituals of cleansing, of purifying, of, of washing and consecrating, that there's actually something that needs to happen to a rebellious human being who has spent a huge portion of our life and continues to spend much of our energy resisting his reign, that there's something that has to happen to, to prepare us to enter his holy presence. You're going to need a whole lot of blood because we are guilty. We are rebellious. And our sin is worthy of death. And the Bible has been super clear about that. So all that's going to happen on these rituals of purity and these rituals of cleansing are really preparing us for the work of Jesus. That it's through Jesus that we actually see the Holy God pursuing us. But he's not saying you have to clean yourself up. He's not saying you have to atone for yourself. You don't have to forgive yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. He sheds his blood to cleanse us. And in his shedding of his blood, it's like this veil that would separate humanity from the presence of God has been torn in half. And this, this thing has been opened up where you now have access to the holy God of the universe as an unclean person that has been made clean through the blood of the Lamb. And that's what Exodus is showing us, that there's an access to the holy God of the universe, the giver of life the giver of rest, the giver of joy, the giver of security, the giver of affection, the giver of intimacy, the giver of all of these things that your heart longs for, they're found in God. And through Jesus, he's drawing you near to find those in him instead of all the other areas that we tend to try to find him outside of him. So God is drawing us near. And what I think is interesting about this passage and kind of the second thing I just want to highlight um, briefly is that in this passage, there's such a beautiful picture of grace. And if you were to kind of put it in a sentence, grace is the source of obedience. In Exodus 19, the order of what happens is so important, that grace is the source of obedience. This is going to be the beginning of the law and the giving of the law right now. At Sinai, God is going to give the Ten Commandments. We're going to see that at the very beginning of the fall, followed by a lot of other commandments, followed by the rest of Exodus, which is full of law. You're like, oh, that's exciting. You know, uh, that's our fall, law. And you're like, okay, what if there are other churches in the city for the fall? Um, it's the giving of the law. Leviticus is going to be a lot more law, and there's going to be a lot of law in the Bible. But it is so important to see that the law comes on the other side of God's grace. Look at the passage of verse 4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, what did they do to deserve that? He's talking about how he brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them. 
What did they do to, to, to deserve it? Did they clean themselves up first? Did they? Nothing. God, in his mercy and in his grace, pursued them, called them, and redeemed them. And he redeemed them not because they were more worthy than the Egyptians. In fact, in the 10th plague, if you remember, everybody deserved death. Everybody deserved punishment. And the reason why the Israelites didn't experience the death of their firstborn children wasn't because they were better than the Egyptians. It's because they trusted in the word of God and they trusted in the blood of the lamb. And they painted the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel. And it wasn't through their obedience. It wasn't through their purity. It wasn't through their superiority. To anybody, it was because they listened to the word of God and they trusted in his grace and his mercy and they looked to the blood of the lamb and through the blood of the lamb, they were redeemed. They were set free. They were saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the lamb alone. And that lamb is pointing us to Jesus Christ. That's where salvation comes from. And then, look at what it says. Now, Therefore, therefore, on the other side of what I did for you by grace alone, through faith alone, through the blood of the Lamb alone, on the other side of that, therefore, now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this is the beginning of the giving of the law. But you have to understand that redemption comes before obedience. We need to be redeemed because of our disobedience. You don't need to obey to be redeemed. That it becomes redemption by grace and then obedience. And this is the flow of the gospel all throughout the narrative of Scripture. You'll see it all throughout the New Testament. God has saved you by his grace. He doesn't need you to work for him. He doesn't need you to prove anything to him. He doesn't need you to earn something or deserve something or be better than anybody or clean yourself up. He doesn't need you to do any of that. Just trust in the blood of the Lamb and experience his love, and experience his grace, and experience the freedom that comes with being a child of God, loved, secure in his love. And in the security of his love, now, now we can progressively learn to obey. We can progressively learn to to trust his word, and to come under his reign, and to grow as those who reflect his holiness and his goodness in the world. But that order is so important. In fact, um, there's an early church father named Tertullian who Um, said this. He said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel, this good news of what God's done for us, is ever crucified between these two errors. And what are those two errors? On the one side is legalism, which says, I have to obey, I have to do good for God to love me, for God to accept me, to experience salvation. I have to prove it and have to earn it. That's legalism. And on the other side is license, the sense of because God loves me, because his grace was for me while I was a sinner, then it doesn't really matter what I do. Both of them are abandoning the gospel. Both of them are errors that destroy the beauty of what God's done, that he's a holy God and he calls us to be holy, but he cleanses us by grace. And in the security of that relationship, now we can grow. That's what I think is beautiful about marriage. It's in the security of a covenant relationship that you can get to know one another and trust one another and you make mistakes and you fail and you can get forgiven and you're constantly not like insecure that if I, if I mess up, then like this will all be over. It's like, no, we've, we've committed to one another. And because we've committed to one another, we know we're going to mess up and we get to grow in the security of that love versus the insecurity of having to constantly prove that you're good enough. It's such a different experience with God and in human relationship. Grace is the source of obedience. 
But obedience is necessary. It's the necessary outflow. And so anybody who's saying, like, because of his love, I don't have to, like, trust his reign. I don't have to obey his commandments. It's like, then you know nothing of his love. The, the, the reign of God isn't about, like, prohibiting you from joy. It's about reordering your understanding of joy. To trust him, to know his reign, to know his design, to know his way of life and say, I want to follow you because I trust that you're the giver of life. You're the designer of life. You're the designer of happiness and joy. And so I'm going to trust your word instead of doing what I used to do before I knew you, which is trust my own sense of life and my own sense of where joy comes from. And so this grace leads into obedience. And the last thing we'll see in this passage, we'll talk about this a lot more in the fall, is that obedience is for the sake of mission. Obedience is for the sake of mission. Um, Absolutely, obedience is an expression of love for God. But what he's calling them to here is to obey in order that they would be able to accurately represent him to the world. Look at what it says. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying it's going to be through their obedience, through them coming under his reign and actually learning through his holiness what it means to be a holy nation that they will reflect God's glory in the world. And this phrase of this treasure possession is a a beautiful phrase. Um, If you think about a kingdom, in a kingdom, like the king has everything. Like the king has some authority over everything, but he also has a personal kind of like private treasure. This treasure that this is his personal possession. All of it's his, but there's this personal possession, this personal treasure. And what the Lord's saying is the whole earth is mine. Everybody on this planet is mine. Everything is mine. I created everything. I created the whole world and everything in it and the universe. It's all mine. And if you obey me and if you'll come under my, my reign, you will be my personal possession, my treasure, this special people that has a special place in my heart. And that special place in my heart isn't merely that you'd experience my love, but it's also that you would be a people that reflect my love to the world outside of you, that you would be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. So a people group, a group of people that actually are acting as priests to the world. So what does a priest do? A priest is somebody who mediates the presence of God to people. So somebody that would actually show the world something of what what God's like, his love and his justice and his care and his kindness and his holiness and his purity. And they would represent God to the world, but also they would bring the needs of the people before God. That we would be a people that are like on our knees, praying to God for our neighbors, praying to God for our city, praying to God for our coworkers, that we would act as like priests in the world that care about this city, care about the nations. And we have this role as the people of God to represent God in the world, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, with your families. Show the world what God's like through humility and love and joy and peace and patience. There are all these these fruits, this like evidence that God is with this person. We call it the fruit of the Spirit's presence with you. The evidence that God is with you, which leads love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But we cannot do that on our own. We can't do that on our own. We need God. It's the evidence of his Spirit's with us, not of we've figured something out. And we also get to pray to God on behalf of the nations. What I think is like beautiful about this passage and beautiful about what God's doing here 
is it really is like laying a foundation for what it means to find life in Jesus. Right in the, in the heart of the passage, there's this verse where it says, the people say, all that, Lord, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're on it. We got it. Okay, we've learned. We're there. We're ready. And that phrase is going to be repeated a couple times in Exodus, later on in Exodus. In Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are going to be highlighting one very important fact. They don't got it. They fail over and over and over again. Which is why when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as bringing a, a new and a better covenant. That we're still called to obey, but our security as his particular people isn't through our obedience, but it's through the obedience of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That he never failed, he never turned, he never deviated. And through his faithfulness and faith in him, not obedience and progressive obedience, but faith in him, which will lead to an increasingly holy life, but faith in him is what secures us as his people. And it's in that place that Jesus is saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. That even in the wilderness right now, Jesus is crying out to you saying, come to me. I want to meet you in the wilderness. And so we're going to create a little bit of space to do that right now. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we need you right now. I pray even around this room as we think about all the different um, anxieties and burdens and distractions in this world that you would kindly, powerfully, supernaturally protect us right now and protect this, this space right now. That we would be a people that both individually and together would learn what it means to meet with you. That you would draw near to people and power right now. In Christ's name, amen.